Welcome to the Standard Age Podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. I can't thank you enough for listening as these episodes have been a wonderful supplement to the line of apparel that I'm thrilled to share is steadily growing. If you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. The website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will be the first to receive product release information as well as receive offers no one else is privy to. Just visit standard-h.com for more information. Seeing Standard H worn by a growing number of watch enthusiasts has been incredibly cool to witness, so chances are good if you're listening to this, you're probably an enthusiast already. However, if not, it makes no difference as Passion Find Jewelry welcomes everyone into their shop in Solana Beach, California. If you're already in deep, you'll know some of the brands that Tim Jackson and his team carry, which are some of the most highly sought-after independent watch manufacturers sold today. Names like Roger Smith, Grunfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as the Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at contonement.co, that's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co, and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. This episode welcomes Black Badger, a.k.a. James Thompson. You've perhaps seen one of the rings he makes, notably a ceramic one worn by McLaren F1 driver Lando Norris, or maybe you've seen an Arcanaut, his recently released watch brand hosting a Fordite dial. Those photos are certainly making their rounds around the interwebs. James is one of those people I love to talk to. We met in New York last October, and not only is his sense of humor disarming and a joy to experience, he can get into the weeds with regards to details and his approach to design, which is why it was inevitable that I'd want to host him for this show. We get into design, philosophy, and of course the creation of Fordite. Frankly, I feel like we really hit the ground running with this one and never let off the gas, so I wanted to keep this intro short. I really hope you enjoy the episode. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. And no, I was going to say, we, um, you have like one of the more fascinating offices um, with a McLaren sticker behind you on glass, uh, a huge mural of you back there. Like what, I, I literally was not going to start this way, but what is your approach to organization? Making everyone think that I'm a complete idiot. <laughs> okay. All right. So <laughs> I, I'm actually not even joking. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I've always sort of had this just happy to be here kind of mentality on things. Mm. Um, I think coming, coming out of design school and stuff, there's such a tendency to just have your own head up your butt and be so convinced that you're going to blow the entire world away. And I, I, maybe that's just part of being Canadian, but you know, I just don't see it that way. So I just, every industry that I kind of, uh, 
I've been called the Forrest Gump of design. Like I kind of accidentally, you know, like you think you're going into the bathroom and that ends up being the door that's into like the Oval Office or something and mm-hmm. end up kind of innocently wandering into a party that you weren't invited to. Sure. And and that's that's how I ended up with the McLaren sticker behind me or all the other sort of motorsports bits and odds and sods all around here. So do you consider yourself lucky? Yeah. In that in, in that way, not not because you live a great life, but just like, do do you go to Vegas and win? Like, are you a lucky guy? No, no, I've I've actually never even been been to Vegas. Um, I went I went gambling once in Hull, Quebec, which is across the river from Ottawa. Okay, and I lost twenty five dollars and went. Uh, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yours truly. I don't have the stones for something like that. I think I would just have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Uh, it's the same reason why I don't uh, play the stock market in this like my dad and brother do. Cause as soon as I made like $10, I'd be like, woo, and, and, and go buy a, buy a hamburger or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where do you fall on the, like the scale of risk? Like, cause usually like entrepreneurs and, and people like in designers, right? Like, when you're pushing the envelope and the and Formula One's the same way, right? Like even just design rise, you're 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 well. There's a little bit more mathematic with aerodynamics and stuff. But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. What what about? No, but but for you, like, are you cool with risks, or do you take risks, or do you play it safe? I mean, it sounds like both. I don't really have a choice in that, um, because people come to me mm. to take the risks they can't afford to. So, you know, it's a bit like the expendables, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm expendable. I'm, I'm, I'm a nobody. So I can come in, try some new stuff with some crazy new materials and start a fire. Mm -hmm. That's okay. But if Mercedes does that or uh, Omega does that, then it's, it's a major, major problem. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what I've made my sort of my, my corner of the industry is essentially a, like a bit of a skunk works. Yeah. Um, and, and that's whether I like it or not, whether my nerves can handle it or not. It's something that I seem to be kind of good at is just being totally off the edge of the map, mm-hmm. not being able to not being able to ask anybody else for advice, you know, like like a lot of my early work has been in, in jewelry design and it's always been like the stuff that we were talking about in New York. Um, and for me, that just still sounds cool to be able to say, yeah, you know, we talked about this in in New York, right? That just, that just sounds really effing cool to me. Um, well, we'll get to that for sure. I've never, I've, I've never worked with gold or diamonds or any of these traditional materials that I have friends who studied actual jewelry design. Mm Mm-hmm. They do. And people have been working with gold for how many thousands of years. Um, so there is quite a lexicon of knowledge and failures and experiences to draw from. Mm-hmm. I'm the guy that made a watch out of fucking coffee. You know, <laughs> hope, hope I'm allowed to swear in your show. There's gonna be a lot of that. Sorry. Totally. No, it's fine. You know, made a watch out of coffee. Who, who the hell do I ask for advice on that? Right. You know, I've, I've got a ring here I was wearing earlier today that's made from a piece of a 70,000 year old woolly mammoth molar. What? You know, combine it, combine it with a piece from an old vintage F1 car and you've got something kind of cool. 
Yeah. Talk about visiting the past and the future, or at least the present, you know? Yeah. So wow. there's always been this aptitude of, of failure is always an option. I, I absolutely take that to heart. And I love that. I've, I've really had to be a big believer in the, uh, in the mantra that scars teach more than trophies. Mm-hmm. So we would do these projects when I was in design school and I would see my, my friends picking projects that they knew they could do well. I'm going to design a table that I know I can sketch well and deliver well so I get a good grade. And that just seemed like kind of bastardizing the creative process for me. So I would try and make something that I had zero experience in and I would just absolutely tank it. But then when you would see the teachers, like a couple of months after that project, they would be like, I, I was just talking about that table you tried to make. I was telling the chief of design for Volvo or something about that. Like it, it sticks in people's heads more than I made a safe table and I drew it really well and I executed it well and I got a good grade, whatever the hell that means. Like, Well, that sort of parallels the risk question, right? Is that like, and, and it made, and you probably don't look at it as risk. Whereas like somebody who's not in design could be like, oh my God, I would never do that. I could, I might embarrass myself. Right. So like, oh, embarrassing myself. That's your MO. Pays <laughs> my rent quite, quite literally. Um, there's a watch project that I'm, I'm risk deep in right now that I obviously can't sort of tell you which one it is. But speaking sure. of risk, this is probably the riskiest one that I've done because it's all happened so quick. And it started from a, hey, I wonder if we can do this, use this material for the dial instead of the traditional material. Mm. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. Can you do that? And as I'm in the process of saying, well, actually, I don't know because no one's ever done that before. It's like I'm chasing my six-year-old through the shopping mall and they're already two miles down the road right. <laughs> getting things underway. And I'm like, okay, can we back up a bit? I have no idea if we can even do this. And so now it's at the point where we're quite far along in the project and there's still several big neon question marks flying around <laughs> over my head all day. Yeah. And I've got a bunch of my own money in on this project. And I'm responsible for a lot of other people's, you know, it's a very, very well-known brand. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's essentially catching lightning in a bottle three or four times underwater while landing a helicopter. Oh, cool. Naked. I've done that before. It's that, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's, that, it, it's that level of trying to keep a million things that you don't understand or you don't have any experience with. Yeah. Keep them in your head, keep them lined up, keep them functioning, keep them on schedule. And all through that, I have the organizational ability of a house cat that just quit smoking. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I empathize with that to some degree. <laughs> um, you must have the same thing with your stuff. I mean, all just the... Oh, dude, don't, don't, don't let this like delicately curated shelf behind me fool you. Like <laughs> I did the exact same thing. Let me just step to the side here. Oops, yeah. I just accidentally happened to have the um, the crankshaft from a McLaren P1 and oh, an God. MBNF table clock sitting on a piece of vintage Formula One skid plate because I always have that sitting out in the middle of a machine shop. Right, right. I, I always wear a gazillion dollar Lynn Vertolin one of one diver watch while I'm on the lathe. 
Right. That's that's a that was going to be a question, but you just spoiled it for everyone. What um, we're so full of bullshit, it's not even funny, <laughs> dude. If I turn my camera around, you would see the hurricane that is my office. <laughs> you would see the giant Lego car that my kids got me for my birthday in April, and I'm still wrestling with. Oh well, at least you opened it because I have an unopened box <laughs> from two years ago that I was like, sure, you know. COVID surely will allow me to build Lego and uh, not happening in two years. But frankly, um, the worst thing you can do for building Lego is to have kids present. Oh, I would imagine so. Yeah, no, I'd imagine. That McLaren Formula One, the the big sort of articulated one from, from my kids for my birthday in April. Mm -hmm. And like as they're opening up, my son Alfred, who's, who's six now, is like, Dad, Dad, you got to finish it today because I want to I want to take it in the bathtub later. And, and, and I'm thinking like, this thing's about 350 bucks or something. And it's like right. 1,800 pieces. I'm probably going to have to call McLaren a couple of times to figure out how to put this damn thing together. <laughs> and then he wants to take it to the park so he can, you know, run it down the slide and take it in the sand and stuff. Right. Did you assemble any of the parts with super glue? <laughs> no, but honestly, I'm on, there's about 400 steps. I'm on about 195 right now. Right. And I kid you not, I got stuck on step three. Oh, no. Because everything's, the whole catalog, which is ironically thicker than probably the owner's manual for an actual... McLaren, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's all shot from this kind of, what would you call it, like isometric perspective, okay. where it's all, it's like the kind of uh, AutoCAD, yeah. and they show things in perspective, but there is no perspective. So all the lines right. go off parallel to eternity. And it... You know, like it's trying to show something that happens on the back of the chassis that you're supposed to put together. And I'm like, you're just showing an arrow pointing into an anonymous block. Right. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing drives people like you and me nuts. I'm like, wait, but it's an arrow. Thanks. I, I know it goes back there, but where? <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a pair of bolt cutters on yeah. standby and maybe a Dremel. I might have to. I like the Dremel idea. Yeah, I like that idea. I'm telling you. All right, so how tell me you, about... How are you, man? How's things going with you? Oh, I'm good, man. But these things aren't about me. <laughs> okay, the, I'm uh, sorry. It has to be about me then. No, yeah, no, totally. No, I'm good. Things are really good. This year has been awesome. Um, did two wind-ups um, for the first time ever. Did the first one in Chicago in July and then went to New York where we met. And um, yeah, it was. it's been a great year. Um Nothing confirmed, but we're going to try, I think we're going to try and do the windup in San Francisco. That's the, well, at this point, it's the only one I haven't done. So uh, I might see you there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's in <laughs> April. Yeah, something like that. I have the email. Nelly sent me the email and I'm just, honestly, I am, I'm, I'm so buried right now, not just with work with Standard H, but also, um, and I'll probably cut this out, but my wife and I bought a new house and I'm, I gut rent, I'm gut renovating it. So like imagine every step, everything in a house that you can design effectively. I've been doing that. I mean, I have, I have a folder of drawings and purchases and receipts. I'm just like, dude, it's a full-time job beyond that. Really. Any, anytime I watch any of those, uh, grand design type shows where somebody buys like an old milk farm in the Australian outback and converts into this crazy high-tech architectural house. Mm -hmm. I love watching the last five minutes. 
when they just show, you know, the guy drinking a coffee and the sun setting behind, but right. the actual process, uh, my wife would have killed me and buried me on that property. So yeah. I was like, over, cause I'm just not the right personality. I would just l- lose my shiz in the worst way. Oh dude, that coffee sipping scene, I would be wearing a wig because I'm fucking losing my hair over this stuff. Like, I mean, like literally I it's, it's, it's crazy, man. Um, but everything I should actually good. apologize on that subject because we we've, we've bumped this podcast I think three times now. Oh no, the last time though was my fault. The last time it was your fault. <laughs> Every time we're going to do it, I wear my standard H shirt to work and try and do it really carefully so I'm not getting it dirty. Oh, today it was like, oh crap, it's in the laundry because I wore it a couple uh, days ago. Oh no, man, it's all good. No, I appreciate it. My my whatever Louis shirt instead. Oh man, that's so that's so great. Habitual game changer. Love it. Do you know um, who he is, Louis? If maybe he, he was, he, he's one of the real OG, uh, ring makers. So okay. when I first started in, in jewelry design, uh, doing all the titanium and the carbon rings and all that kind of stuff, he was sort of the Coke to my Pepsi. Mm. So we were kind of the only two guys doing it. And we were just beating the piss out of each other for years, wow. just passive aggressively leaving little comments on each other's posts. Like, Oh yeah, you got the purple glow. Yeah. Yeah. I looked at that six months ago, but it wasn't good. <laughs> We were such assholes to each other, but constantly, you know, a bit like Ford versus Ferrari and, you know, just right. leveling up. And I go back and I look at the stuff I was doing then. And it was just about sending me flying out a window because we were always just trying to screw over the other guy a little bit more. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a classic case of competition being healthy. Yeah, I absolutely need it because there was always the respect. You know, well, we, who- were trying to dis- we were trying to destroy each other. But there's been so many instances now where somebody just takes a picture of, you know, screenshots one of your ring and sends it to a factory in China and says, can you make me 1,500 of these? So what do you consider your business? Like if you were to label it, like, you know, design agency, like, you know, for example. Stuntcock. Stuntcock. Okay, cool. Um, The fluffers are behind you, I'm sure. (laughs) you know what? I, I really don't know how to answer that. And there's been so many times when you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane and if you're sketching yes. on a little iPad or some idea and the person goes, Hey, what do you do for a living? And it's like, okay. I mean, my education is, is industrial design. I did a master's in industrial design. I don't think I've ever been paid a single hour in my life to be a traditional industrial designer. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't study jewelry design, but I've been a jewelry designer for, you know, 10, 12 years now. Right. But never using jewelry materials. It's more using like the, the old repurposed race car parts and all that kind of stuff like we've been chatting about. Sure. Or weird glow in the dark materials from the watch industry or just random little pieces of the fucking stealth bomber or whatever, you know, little, as you do little bits kind of lying around. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I don't actually really know where to put it. Like now, most of my work is I'm a watch designer, but not a watchmaker because a right. watchmaker, that's a very specific education. Yes. Um, that's like saying, you know, my kid draws houses as right. compared to, is he an architect? Yeah. Well, uh, right. Not really the same thing. So I kind of have a toe in about six or seven different industries and I, I kind of need to keep it that way. Right. Just for my, for my own sanity. Otherwise I'll just kind of wig out and go bonkers on it. Yeah, no, I feel you. Um, you know, I mean like obviously a lot of what we talked about originally was cars. 
I, I know screw all about cars. I don't even hold a driver's license. Um, but just looking around the room, I mean, there's pieces of Red Bull Formula One cars. There's a McLaren P1 engine. Right. And you get and you get all this stuff. There's Fernando Alonso's car sitting over there. It's And all this stuff just comes to you, is my understanding, right? At this point, right? Like you don't seek this stuff out. Like you're not I mean, nobody's selling this shit on eBay. You know what I mean? Uh, you could. You could. But you could. <laughs> could, but then they probably wouldn't talk to me anymore. Right, right. Um, the McLaren cooperation came around actually through uh, their, their quite famous, now, now former head of design, uh, Frank Stephenson, mm. who designed the P1 and the Maserati. Gee, uh, I can't remember the names. Maseratis and Ferraris and all these just, you know, shit hot cars. Right. And we got to be buddies through, I had a friend that worked at, at, at MTC in marketing. And <clears throat> I was in London for Salon QP, one of the big watch shows. Sure. And he's like, well, if you're going to be there on, on Thursday, you know, I can, I can see if we can get you in for a factory tour. So cool. Fantastic. You know, he just said, just kind of keep your head down and don't sort of take any pictures and we can maybe sort of, you know, take a look around and see stuff. And we'll introduce you to Frank because Frank's this really famous car designer who's really into watches. And I had just released my first watch, the Schofield Black Lamp, mm -hmm. um, about 2014, around there, 2015. So I'm going to MTC uh, for, this, for this kind of behind-the-scenes tour. Literally, as I'm pulling up to the main door, the big glass one that right. by the lake, uh, my phone beeps, and it's my, my idiotic friend saying, yeah, so we've got all the prototypes for, I think, what would have become the 570, 570S. All those prototypes were all sort of being wheeled around, so they had, there was nobody allowed in. Wow. Uh, so he goes, yeah, so we had to kind of tell, tell them that you were, uh, were going to buy a P1. So that's how we snuck you in. Nice. And it's like I showed up on the fucking bus. You know, in like jeans and a t-shirt, you know, like an old like Van Halen t-shirt looking like I don't have $10 to my name. There's nothing more LA than that situation. <laughs> well, now, yeah, I can get that. But this was like, as I'm walking in the door, shaking hands with Bruce McLaren's uh, son-in-law, I think it was Steven. And they're sort of showing me around like I'm an investor or something. And I'm just like, right, right. My voice went up about three octaves. And <laughs> I'll have to ask my manager, Mr. Simpson. Wow. And so just sort of through, through that, I got to be really, really good friends with, with Frank Stephenson. And we've always kind of had this, these, these sort of dorky Facebook instant messenger little design chats. Um, so he's, he's bought several of the rings that I do. Uh, I've, mm -hmm. I've got almost everything in this room is autographed by him, even things he didn't make, which was weird. <laughs> no, actually, I, I don't know if you can be able to see it, but the long horizontal thing. Yeah. Right. Oh, sorry, that one. Yeah, with like the winglets. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, a future concept by the uh, McLaren design team to see what F1 could look like 20 years in the future. And oh. because that was one of the days that I was there, uh, Frank actually had them knock it up with my, it's got my Black Badger logos all over it and stuff and little Canadian flag and my name as the driver and stuff. That's epic. And actually just underneath it, if I can just humble brag for one second. Sure. Just underneath it is a current McLaren F1. Uh, they did like limited edition prints. And a friend of mine bought one for me for Christmas. Uh, and then through kind of a weird series of events, 
through another English friend. Uh, one of my golf racing loomed rings ended up on the hand of Lando Norris. Right. Became instant. You know, the guy just popped up on my Instagram direct messages. Hey, buddy, how's it going, man? Just got the just sitting here casually chatting with the guy while he's in a limo and or in a taxi going somewhere. Right. So I sent the print to him because it's actually his number four McLaren car. So I just got it back Sweet. like a couple of days ago. So it's signed and stuff. Oh, sick. Well, he dented a table with that ring, right? Yeah. Yeah. Good, good memory. He has one of the, it's like, it's like, I don't know if that's going to show up in your camera. It's like this one. Yeah. Except mine has four on the inside, but it's black ceramic and it's got blue and orange loom. Right. Um, in the, in the McLaren sort of vintage golf racing colors. And he was doing a, a Twitch or a podcast or something with his friend, Max, this guy, Max Futrell one of his best friends and sort of not sidekick that sounds so rude and condescending but we'll say right, sidekick just, yeah buddy and they was... were talking about their favorite f1 courses and stuff and he's trying to make a point and lando kind of bangs his hand on the table and it was like a, a steel table and you just heard this bell dong <laughs> and his eyes go huge and he looks down and you hear him sort of off mic go holy fuck i dented your table man <laughs> and they both just stop and they're looking at this dent in the table and lando holds up his hand and he's looking at his looking at his ring, then he looks at the table, then he looks at the ring, and he's like, uh, sorry. Not a scratch on it. <laughs> the ring was fine. I actually had a message from him after that saying, dude, whatever this ring is made of, you know, like we, yeah. we need this on the cars. Yeah, well done. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So where, where did you go to design school? Uh, I flunked out of a couple of really good ones. <laughs> I started off at... A place in Vancouver, where, where I'm originally from, a place called the Emily Carr Institute, which I tried for years to get into because I didn't go to art school first. Like, I didn't take art classes. Like, most of my designer friends, you know, sort of had artistic parents and they've been drawing since they were little kids and they've gone through art classes all through uh, high school and stuff. My, my first art class was at art school. Wait, so you applied to design school effectively with zero portfolio is what I'm understanding. Yeah, kind of. That's ballsy, dude. <laughs> I did a bunch of what they call non-credit courses, and it's it's almost... That <laughs> <laughs> sounds like art, huh? It, it sounds like art, man. I, I, you can tell I've had to explain this to my dad while I was trying to <laughs> figure out how to pay for these classes. No, but dad, it's it means nothing. It just costs money. <laughs> It's not something super valuable like an art degree, Dad. <sighs> no, it was, um, I had to do a bunch of sort of like the kind of classes you do to build a portfolio to apply to get into art school. Right. And looking back, they were all just complete self-righteous bullshit. You know, I'm going to make a table that helps feed the children of the world and all this kind of crap. Like it, 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 and it's the same eight projects every single designer has in their portfolio. Right. that they refuse to show anymore. Right. But a lot of it was just the creative process I really liked. I just got really excited about a blank piece of paper. Sure. I, I, I keep coming back to a blank piece of paper as some kind of a, like a focus point in my life. For sure. Um, and, I, I, and I absolutely will tell you, a blank piece of paper does make a noise. Just sit there and look at it, and it you can hear it. You can hear the blankness of it. Just fucking laughing at you or, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do to it. It's just, it's like your cat trying to give it a pill. It's just looking <laughs> at you going, it's just not going to happen. Not happening. Right. <laughs> you don't have the rocks for this. So I was at that school and, 
in Vancouver for a bit and I just ended up hating it because it was so decorative. Mm. Um, it didn't really matter what you did as long as it was, you know, this was like about year 2000. So everything was purple, semi-translucent IMAX and all this kind of Volkswagen new Beetle stuff. But it was, yeah, it was very decorative and I didn't like it. And I took all my projects too seriously. And just like every first year student, I thought I was so unbelievably talented and such a genius that I knew more than everybody. Mm. And I made my life miserable. So I right. flunked the hell out in about second year. And at that time, we had an exchange student from Sweden mm. at our school. And um, just, just the way she talked about the educational system over here, like you don't get grades. You don't get, you know, I got 75% on a project. You got 85%. Clearly right. you're going to get the job and have a better life. Right. There was no grades. It was just, what did you learn? And that really, really, really kind of started me down this path of just exploration and just fucking up all the time. So it wasn't even pass fail. No, no, it was, it was the project might be design a short term sitting device, not a chair. Cause a chair, you think of four legs and a back, but a short term sitting device can be a couch, a cushion, a, a rock, you know, a, pile of right. oranges sort of right. you can think of. <laughs> um and i i just i really really enjoyed that way of working of just kind of coming at things non non-linear mm -hmm. um so where the hell is it going you can tell i've just been rocking a spread well you, all you day yeah you made it miserable for yourself you flunked out and then i guess it took so you to out of that school, school in vancouver yeah. and then actually decided almost kind of on a whim um, that I was going to move to move to Scandinavia by myself. Mm -hmm. I didn't know a single person in Europe, obviously didn't speak the language, um, and just left home and everybody I'd ever known and moved to Europe by myself. And about half an hour into the flight, kind of went, the fuck did I do? <laughs> it's oh, no shit my yeah. God. It was just ab absolute righteous panic. It was just glorious. Um, but I think it kind of had to be that way. It had to be a right. jump out of the plane, then see if you got a parachute on kind of thing. Otherwise, I would have just taken a comfortable, semi-easy, everything's okay kind of route. Right. It needed to be a holy crap moment. Yeah, it's almost like, okay, so forget the term risk, because I don't even want to hear myself say that again in this conversation. It's almost like an adrenaline thing, it sounds like, for you. Are you kind of an adrenaline I'm very, I'm very competitive. Okay. And I would almost say I'm quite combative in these kinds of things. Mm. I, I like taking the fight to something, just the stupidest things, you know, like somebody could steal my car and I'd be like, yeah, oh, that sucks. But like sharpening a pencil, you know, and when the sharpener gets a little dull and it doesn't actually cut. It drives you crazy. It just, ah, there's gotta be a better way. Oh my God. We're such and then I'll spend like four hours making way. a jig so I can sharpen a pencil, like on the lathe, you know, yeah. so now I can take a deer down with that pencil. <laughs> like it's, it's stupid, <laughs> but that's just, but that, that process, mm -hmm. that, that kind of way of working is you were asking before, how do I define my job? That. Right. If you oh. say to somebody, uh, I want you to design me a car. And a bunch of dudes from design school sit down with a box of markers and start drawing. You've already failed. Mm -hmm. You're going to get a physical object that solves your problem. 
Whereas I always kind of really got more excited about, can I go back three steps? And is there something I can change in the problem so that there's no need for the vehicle at the end? Like mm -hmm. it, it, it's easy to get really dumb and kind of overly poetic about this, but we'll say it like this. I would always get a cup of coffee at 7-Eleven on the way into my last studio. And I liked a little bit of sugar in my coffee, like about a, you know, about half of one of these packets and you'd stir it. And I would always think it was so pointless. Put a tiny bit of sugar in, stir it twice with a plastic spoon, and then you end up, or do you throw the spoon away or something? It just felt really kind of dumb and kind of wasteful. And this is, this is probably really obvious to most people, but then I realized if you put the sugar in first, then pour the coffee in. It stirs itself. <laughs> yeah, it's negligible, right. The spoon becomes irrelevant. Right. If you go back in time and don't fall down and skin your knee, the Band-Aid is now irrelevant. Useless, right. Useless. And I mean, it's, it's such an obvious kind of way of thinking, but I just, I think because so many designers are trained in physical problem solving. What's an object I can make and I can sell you that facilitates whatever it is you're trying to do. And maybe it's because I can't draw to save my life. I, I mm. think that's probably part of it, but I just like the other way, the other way of looking at it, the sort of what we call the soft sciences of it, not ergonomics, not engineering, but the, the I've had four glasses of wine and I'm starting to get lucid. And now the ideas are starting to come kind of, kind of way of doing it. So you drink too. <laughs> it, it does happen on, on occasion. <laughs> right. Well, no, but that, that way of thinking even, um, let me know if I'm just talking in circles, by the way, man. I'm, you can tell how socially it, starved I am in here. That's, that's my favorite part of these shows. <laughs> in, in 2010, when it was time to do my grad project from design school here, here in Sweden, my uh, master's thesis project, uh, I, was, I was getting into watches and I thought I want to do like a cool watch design. Mm -hmm. And I had kept in contact with a couple of the people from NASA, from <laughs> the university the previous university that I was at in Sweden. So casual, so casual. <laughs> Dude, it, it wasn't even my sort of project. I moved to Sweden to go to this school specifically to do this project, which was where they sent a bunch of the grad students to the Johnson Space Center for about eight weeks. Okay. And they worked on the international, they worked on stuff for the International Space Station. And I was wow. so gun ho for that. <clears throat> and then as we're about to start the project, the school had changed, the school in Sweden had changed from a, an international master's program to a Swedish master's program, which meant it was only open to Swedish students. Mm -hmm. So even though the course was in Texas, I was, I was yanked out about a month before we were supposed to go and basically got deregistered from the university half, like two years into a master's. Wow. And that's actually when I started my company black badger because i was just unbelievably pissed off and just had no one to no no problems to solve so to speak why the name hmm? is is the name obvious like how'd you come up with it no it's just stupid i thought i thought it was cool at the time now it makes me crazy um a badger for its size is freakishly aggressive it, it'll fight a grizzly it, it'll lose 
but it'll, you know, sort of go at it with anything and everything. And I've always kind of dug that aspect because I'm a one, a one man army, so to speak. And especially when I find myself sitting across the table from someone like Frank Stephenson or any of these sort of, you know, mega watch brands and stuff that I'm working with, they've right. got their entire marketing department and engineering department. And I've got a cup of coffee. Uh, feels good. I, yeah. I like that. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so I was saying about the, about the master's project, um, I thought I was going to do a watch and I, I pitched the idea to who was going to be our sort of professor handler for this project. I worked on it with a friend of mine and we talked about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do this watch thing. We wanted to have some kind of a NASA connection. You know, it, it sounds really kind of dumb now. It was going to be like a, an update of the Omega Speedmaster for the potential Mars missions that were being talked about in about 2008, 2010 or so. Mm-hmm. And the teacher goes, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I've got another project here that I actually need a couple students for, and you guys might be perfect for it. And she slides a business card across the table, and it was the advanced R&D department of the Royal Australian Navy. Okay. And they were looking for people to help them design the next generation of submarines. So going back to that Forrest Gump right place at the right time comment from before i can barely even swim i mean i grew up in calgary for christ's sake i could swim in wheat maybe but and and we went to south australia and we spent about two and a half three months on a secure navy base helping them design next generation navy submarines but not not the you know the weapons and all that kind of stuff it was purely uh habitation habitation concepts Mm mm-hmm and I think at the outset, we thought it was going to be one of these really, you know, like I had this fantasy of doing like uh, the Top Gear, you know, like the carbon fiber toilet and all these really kind of right. ridiculous things. And, and a couple of weeks in, into the research there, we found the biggest, the biggest issue with submarines isn't the fear of being at the bottom of the ocean in a can, because they're all okay with that or they wouldn't have got through there. Right. It was the little slice of life things. The toilet's too small. I have to share the bed with somebody else. I can't check my Facebook and everything smells like what we had for dinner last night. Right. So actually everything that we worked with was personal space and privacy issues in extreme environment habitation design. That's so interesting. So we thought it was going to be this, I thought it was going to be this really hunt for red October, (laughs) Tom Clancy night vision goggles kind of project. I designed a fucking shower, you know, a bathroom, but it was, that again, it was, it was that way of thinking that kind of oddball problem solving is what they were really interested in because they had probably 200 of the finest naval engineers and architects in the world in this company, but they had nobody from, from the design side of things. And you know, you, by doing that, you made their lives better, right? We made their lives so much worse. Really? (laughs) Oh God. Uh, just how they function, though, you know, like having privacy and having your own personal space and maybe taking a shower a little easier, it 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 it, it decreases the amount that you're on edge doing everything else, right? In theory, yes, I completely agree. And that was what we based most of our work on. Yeah. The problem is that, how do I say this nicely? Uh, do you have a lot of listeners in Australia? I have several. Yeah, no, no, it is. Yeah. It's like my fourth largest Australian market. dudes. Australian dudes are famous for being uh, aggro. 
it's a very headstrong. They don't give a shit. Yeah, I love it. Whine about stuff, you know, if I can go do it. <laughs> uh, and especially when you put that into like a military setting as well. It was just mm. like, uh, I'm just going to bang my head on the wall until there's a hole and then I can walk through that wall. Like, that's great, guys. Good thinking. Cool. So we actually got to present this project at a, at a NATO Navy conference about a year after we graduated. And just by moving around the existing floor plan, not by actually making it, but just by doing the floor plan a little quote unquote smarter, mm-hmm. we managed to save something like 10 square meters of space on a Navy submarine, which costs a couple of dollars. Yeah. So we're presenting this and we're saying, but just before we even get to our concepts by doing these three little smart things, you've removed the need for an entire hallway that runs the entire length of the boat, which saves, we'll say five square meters, whatever the hell it is, 10 square meters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're presenting this, and this guy from uh, the U.S. Navy, in the audience, sticks his hand up and he goes, so "You've managed to save ten square meters on a on a warship." And we say, "Well, yeah." And he goes, "Well, that's great. That means uh, we can carry three extra cruise missiles." And and we're like, "No, no, 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 no. It means the toilet can be the same size as the toilet you have at home. The shower yeah. can be the same, just like you're saying. The shower can be the same size that is at home." They didn't care. You live better, you sleep better, you perform better, the boat works better. And here's me standing up on stage in front of about 1,500 people in Glasgow. And you know what this guy says to me? He goes, son, if you wanted a hot shower, you should have joined the fucking Air Force. <laughs> and the whole room just bursts out into laughter because it was all like ex-military dudes that are consultants. And everyone's just howling with laughter. And I turn and look at my buddy Matthias that I did the project with, and we both just kind of go... Like, it's not like we're designing a car that we're going right. to see on the road. Right. When the hell am I going to set foot on an Australian Navy submarine? And if you're going right. to laugh off design recommendations as, oh, well, you know, you're just too soft and too wimpy for this. Lots of luck, sir. Interesting. Yeah. And oddly enough, the people that make the decisions will never set foot on the boat. Right. Like you think about why you bought your last car. Probably some personal reasons. Right. The color, the fit, the performance, all that. But the people that decide on these things will more than likely never, ever set foot on it. So that's really so interesting. So it's, it, it's, it's an odd perspective. So, so that's my seven-hour way of describing my weird little company. No, but I think it's brilliant. Um, <laughs> and thank you for sharing it. What, um, so would you consider your rings your hero product? That's how I got introduced to Black Badger is through your I probably rings. used to. I would almost say now I'm a little kind of handcuffed to them. Okay. Because they were never meant to be popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would make one or two things like for myself. And it was mostly just done to kind of like this was the early days of Instagram. So I would take a picture of some cool glow in the dark ring and it would get a bunch of likes on Instagram in 2012. And I, I thought I was cool. And that was kind mm-hmm. of all I needed. And then you would start getting five or six or seven or eight messages a day saying, fuck, that's really cool. You know, can you make me one? How much are they? And I would sort of get really frustrated because everything that I had done was never meant for serial production. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, try, try and make a, you know, I mean, like a lot of this Fordite material that I work with is, it's just 40 year old lumps of car paint that have right. built up in a car factory. It's, it's a waste product. And if you can manage to get a ring out of it, good on you. But it's not like the material is meant to be processed that way. It's not like 
titanium that you can just slap the crap out of and do anything you want to it. This stuff, if you sneeze on it, it'll just blow apart. Is that right? Yeah. You, you, you really need to know what you're doing with it. So it's rigidity is very directional. Uh, yeah. Think of it like the crappiest plywood ever. Okay. Yeah. Because like in, my mic doesn't pop out. There's a piece right here. So that's Fordite. Oh, wow. You know, it, it's just overspray from car factories that's built up over years and years and years of, of painting many cars. And it would usually sort of drip and form on the underside of work surfaces. So that's where you get... Oh, that's why it's not cleaned up, because it's out of the way and it's not exactly visible, right? Yeah. So it's not like it's not like a barber shop where like, okay, I got to sweep up the hair. You know what I mean? Like, it's just sitting there. I, I actually talked to a guy who's in his 70s now, and his first job when he was about 15 was at one of the Ford plants in Michigan, and he got a hammer and a screwdriver, and he had to crawl along under the assembly line and just knock off all these kind of geological stalactites of paint that were forming and dripping as the chassis were being rolled around and stuff. Right. So the ones that are on the underside that have really dripped quite nicely, you get, I mean, it, it's just like tree bark. So cool. Now where it gets to be hard is a lot of those. The indentation. Yeah. Yeah. They go down like this and they might only touch for about half a millimeter at the bottom. So you can sort of pop them off by hand. Some people will just infill that entire piece with black resin mm -hmm. um, and stabilize it like you do with wood. But that's uh, a bit of a cop out. Well, it seems like that's a finite amount of product worldwide, though. Like when when do you run out of it? Uh, I might be already. I don't know. I mean, I've really? got I've got a guy, uh, a really good friend of mine in the U.S. who who brokers this stuff. Um, First of all, there was timeline, there was a sweet spot for the good Fordite. And it was about the 1970s to mid-1990s in the U.S. And that was because car paint was so full of shit. Solvents and the chemicals, it was right. just horrible. Right. And not just the actual components being painted, but because this stuff, it's, it's the amalgamation. It, it's the overspray that builds up, say, on the mounting hardware. That frame has gone through the ovens two or three or 400 times by the time that chunk gets big enough to knock it off. So it's like rock solid. Right. Um, I tried something similar. Actually, this is Fordite as well, but that is McLaren Fordite. Yeah, it looks like an agate. It, one of the names for this stuff is, is Detroit agate. I was gonna say, is it called Fordite because it comes from the Ford factory originally? Traditionally, it's called Fordite. I mean, I've never encountered, quote, Fordite that's come from a Honda factory. I'm supposing right. it would be almost exactly the same thing. Okay. But, but as far as sort of the response that you get from the car nerds, if it's, if it's not Fordite from the Ford factory, then just go to hell. Interesting. So my, my stuff is, is from there. So the problem with new generation car paint, especially supercar paint, is everyone's trying to be greener. Mm -hmm. So McLaren paint is water-based. So it's thinner. It's thinner. It's a little more elastic. So your mm -hmm. car doesn't chip as much. Uh, it's a little greener for the environment, but it also means that it doesn't perform the same way as Fordite. 
So I am a little happy and proud to say, I believe I actually hold the entire world supply of McLaren Fordite. Um, this was something that, that Frank Stephenson and I were working on a couple of years ago. And it just, you can almost take quite a thick piece of it and, and just bend it. Like it stays soft. Interesting. So maybe if it was something like a, but will it, or there's no elasticity though, or when you bend it, it stays that way. Kind of like when you um, bend it, it goes back, but all the layers kind of start to come apart and stuff. I see. And you can kind of take a fingernail to the edge and just draw on it because it's so soft. Right. So something like a, a this is a drink coaster I made. That's such a great colorway. Needs to be mounted on solid carbon fiber on the back or it would just kind of crap out. Isn't that neat? That's so beautiful. Your buddy Ted's got one of these. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's got one of those. Shout out Ted Gashu. Ted. Um, so, okay, well, this kind of gets us forward into this kind of concoction of conversation between Fordite and watch design because of Arcanaut. Yeah, and I'm just looking around. I'm super pissed because I don't even have one. Oh, that's fine. They're, they're in high demand. I get it. <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, yeah. The Fordite ones were just blasting them out to customers and stuff. So it was like we had each, you know, sort of picked which one we want to have and we we're all ready to get it. And then it's like, as soon as we got cases and hands and all ready to start making, it's like, oh, we should send them out to clients instead. So tell me, walk us through this process because what, A, what was the genesis of Arcanaut? A, B, who are your partners? Like who helps make your cases, for example? And like, what was, what was like that upstart like? Specifically in the cases, make sure you come back to me on that one because that's actually kind of a cool anecdote. Okay. Um, Arcanaut was around for a couple of years before me. I met these guys at Salon QP in London, um, Anders and Simon, uh, two, two of the bright boys from Denmark, uh, Copenhagen, where Arcanaut's based, uh, came over to see me because they had just seen a bunch of the weird work I was doing with sort of strange materials and stuff. And we just started chatting. And they're, they're just awesome. That They're just like, I was exhibiting at QP, so I had my own booth and I was just inundated with people that wanted to pull you into their own pet project. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't like uh, Monsieur Rolex walks in and says, Hey, you're the guy we're looking for. You know, right. it was somebody who would, it, it actually, it was kind of like that. Somebody would come in and give you a business card and say, I'm I don't know, head of brand development for Richard Mill watches. And we'd love to talk to you about something. You're like, Holy shit. So I spend like the entire night talking to this guy, ignoring everybody else in my booth. And then we talk a few days later and he's like, yeah, my, uh, my brother is, you know, like opening a pizzeria and do you want to help him design a logo? Like it, it was something just that useless. And I was right. so pissed. If you would have just said, you want to help us do a logo? Sure. Here's my card. Call me. Not I'm head of brand development, blah, blah, worldwide marketing for Richard Mill. Right. Monsieur Mill would love to talk to you. I'm like, oh, okay, great, great. Yeah. And it just, I got totally buffaloed on it. Oh, uh, so the Arcanaut guys came in at that point the brand was called Goldman Brandt, um, Simon Goldman and, and Anders Brandt. And I, I instantly started giving them shit about that because I said their name sounded like a law office. Uh, like a law firm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The accounting firm of Goldman Brandt underwriters. Right. Um, but they were just, just, they weren't watch guys, you know. This was a couple of Danish geeks. They, they weren't old money Geneva. They weren't pretentious startup, you know. Uh, trust fund kids of any sort. So I helped them on the first, the first release called the Arc One a couple of years ago, and I just 
basically just did a bunch of consulting and answered questions on the on the loom aspects of the watch. Mm -hmm. And then when it came time for the Arc II, um, they said, well, we'd love to, you know, go on the run with you again, but it's it kind of is a little dumb if every single watch we do is going to be a Black Badger limited edition guest starring kind of thing. So why don't we bring you in as a part owner? Um, and I just thought that was just absolutely cool. So, so I've got a good sized chunk of the company. I'm kind of officially on board. And as far as, far as who the company is and what we do, that, that kind of depends what day of the week you ask. Um, That's the best. Right? Yeah. What we're really trying to do is, is, just, is just have fun with it. And that sounds like such a high school way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that we're not Swiss. You know, we're not Swiss and we're not sorry. It's one of those things that's like written up on the wall here somewhere. Because um, there aren't a lot of industries that are so tied to one country. Right. You know, Germany might want you to think they're the only ones that make cars. Italy might want you to think they're the only ones that make wine, but France might disagree. Right. Uh, but with Switzerland and watches, it's like if you're not from Zurich or Geneva, you know, get fucked. You don't, you don't mm -hmm. belong here kind of thing. So we're not even trying to fit in. And the problem is now in the days of Kickstarter and all this kind of crap, every single piece that comes out is doing this. We're disrupting the end, even, you know, habitual game changer, like my shirt. Everyone's trying to change the game or disrupt the system. And it's like, we just want to make fucking watches, man. Right, right. You know, we're not trying to start a revolution. They're just cool and we're having fun with them. Yeah. Even if it is just visually different, it, you're different automatically like you're not trying to be the patek of movement i'm sure you know what i mean because i'm sure the price point would be very different <laughs> well yeah and if you're if you're a movement i was gonna say movement snob sounds kind of rude well but it is. if you're a movement snob there's probably only two or three brands that you would ever buy right. you're only ever going to look at a patek or a jlc or something like this um you know and i, I i've worked with some of those very, very high-end brands. And I couldn't tell you the movement. You know, mm. I did a watch with David Toon a couple of years ago. Couldn't tell you the movement to save my life. Um, did a piece of MBNF a couple of years ago. I think it was a Salita something. Right. Don't, don't know. What did you work on with MBNF? That is the, the MBNF HMX, HMX Black Badger Edition. Sweet. Which uh, still gives me goosebumps to say, Eight years later. Yeah. About 2016, these came out. I met Max Booser, who, if you don't know who he is, it's your fault, not his. <laughs> totally. The prince of the watch industry. He's, he's one of the most famous people in the industry and one of the most relevant people. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I met him at Salon QP. Everybody kept saying, go, go talk to that guy. Go talk to that guy. That's Max Booser. And I had yeah. to Google who he was because I didn't know screw all about independent watches at that point. Right. And I looked at what he, who he was and I looked at the watches and decided I wasn't cool enough to talk to this guy. And I, I literally ran away and hid in the corner. And then another night came back and I actually got my, got my balls up and went and chatted with him. And, and we literally just stood there in the corner for, for a good half hour, just chit chatting about everything, not about right. business, not about how much money we can make, just about right. transformers. I think it was like just, just dumb life stuff. And I got his business card and I kind of thought that's, I'm okay with that. I have Max Booster's business card. That's a feather in my cap. Totally. 
and I was I was showing him some of the rings I'd done. I think I, I had made a carbon fiber watch buckle for for a seven Friday watch. Okay. <laughs> this is how stupid I am. I made like a fifteen hundred dollar strap for like an eight hundred dollar watch. Like, <laughs> but it was the thinking behind it mm-hmm. that he really liked and he really related to. So about a week later, I was I was back home here in Sweden and I was. You know, I was like doing the dishes. I was probably standing there in my underwear, having a cup of coffee or something in the kitchen in the morning. My phone rings. It's, it's Max calling from Geneva saying, keep thinking about that stuff we chatted about. You know, would you, would you be interested in doing a collaboration with this? And I, I kid you not, this is like just skating around on a frozen pond and somebody just comes over and hands you an NHL contract. Right. Right. I, I was, I, I did not deserve it at that point. This was, plucked out of absolute nowhere. Right. And Forrest Gump. A fucking Forrest Gump, buddy. And they have this series they do at, at MBNF. Um, for those who don't know, MBNF stands for Max Booster and Friends. Right. And the Friends is their network of people they collaborate with, sort of all around the world, all skill sets, all this. And a lot of the brands aren't really very transparent about who does what, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, if you ask me who does my movements or who makes my hands, I'll probably tell you to go to hell. But with MBNF, that's their thing, is they always right. really c- celebrate, you know, these kind of Ocean's Eleven super teams they put together. Super cool. Um, who makes your cases? Shut up. <laughs> yeah, we'll get on that one. The, the cases for Arcanaut. Yeah. That was actually quite cool because... Anders had designed a case that looks very, very, very simple. Uh-huh. And it is unbelievably difficult to manufacture because tolerances and all this kind of stuff. So he actually showed it to a bunch of the really high-end custom case manufacturers in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And they just flat out said, no, can't, can't do it, can't touch it, it's going to wreck our machines, go design something else. So he just got stonewalled everywhere. And Denmark is the world center for the manufacturing of hearing aids. Oh, whoa. So our case was actually prototyped and manufactured by a microengineering company from the hearing aid industry. My God, I love this. What? I love this. Yeah, this what? is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Sorry, I'm six years old. <laughs> and... That, again, is this way of working. We're not Swiss and we're not sorry. We're not trying to fit into your industry. We're, we're doing our own thing over here. So that's why mm-hmm. you'll never really see us doing gold watches, rose gold, guillaume, uh, Cote de Genève, all these sort of fantastic, really traditional Swiss watchmaking right. practices because we're not Swiss. Right. I mean, fucking hell, I'm going to watch out of coffee. I mean, here's all, I'm doing a bunch of four night watch dials right now. Look at that. What's the price point of an Arcanaut? Uh, between about, about three to 4,000 US. Uh, depends on whether it's the, the dark matter, which is our, I don't want to say entry series, but those are about 35, I believe. And I think they're all sold out actually. Mm-hmm. Those were made. Um, <laughs> those were made through sheer vandalism, <laughs> which I'm I'm a little bit proud of. The dial and the dark matter series 
is a stone composite uh, made of shale. Okay. And there's a fountain in front of the building where I live here in Sweden that's made of the shale stone. And it's just the crappiest stone ever. Like my kids go up to the corner of it. And if you sort of pick at a corner with your fingernail, you know, big sheets of it sort of pop off. Like it's just falling apart. Oh, wow. So I picked up a bunch of these pieces and put them through an industrial espresso grinder, <laughs> as you do, and got, yeah, I'm feeding gravel through a coffee grinder. Like, welcome to Black Badger. Here's your goggles. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and got this really nice, super lightweight stone powder out of it, which we cast into the dials. And when you look at the dials up close, you've got this unbelievable detailed structure right. out of a very, very boring pedestrian looking stone. Yeah. 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 So just that kind of that way of thinking, that way of working. So the dark matter ones were the first series that we did when I was kind of officially on board. And um, yeah, so that was the arc two dark matter. Now we're flying through the arc two Fordite edition. Right. Which is, uh, I think we sold about 20 or 25 before we even officially released them. That's amazing. People on our email list that said, you know, I really like that dark matter one, but do you have yeah. anything that's got a little bit more color to it? Right. And I had done some Fordite watches with George Bamford a couple of years before, in about 2019. But it was, it was a 10-piece series. And being Bamford watch departments, you know, they sold out in about two days. Right. So financially and stuff, it was like, yeah. But I just, I'm like, there, there's more we can do with this. You know, I've sort of, I've, I've got more to say. Sure. The expression goes. So, so we picked it up with Arcanaut. Um, and it's, it, it almost feels like it's kind of, it's a better expression for the material mm -hmm. because with the Arcanaut, we just got rid of everything on the dial, no mm -hmm. indicators, no 10, 12, one, nothing, just the Fordite. And we redesigned the hands to make them a little bigger for legibility because sure. the dials can be really quite busy. Yeah. They're busy. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you look at something like that one, that's yeah. Yeah. It's an acid trip on your wrist. Yeah, right. This looks like, yeah, yeah. Some kind of a drug in, drug incident. Um, so every single one is a piece unique, and it makes our marketing guys bonkers, right? Because somebody wants to buy one, and it's like, oh, can I have that one that you know Anders just showed on Instagram? Right. Well, it's the only one. Sorry, it's <laughs> the next person in our ordering window who's already prepaid, you know, six months ago, gets to pick from the next batch, and et cetera. So mm. that side of things makes it really complicated. Right. For me, it's just fucking fun. It's just so much fun. Yeah. Because you'll pick up these. Right. Chunks, you know, and it just, it, it literally just looks like a bright red piece of, you know, tree bark almost. And looking inside, trying to figure out what different colors you're trying to chase. Right. This one has a really, has one single stripe of bright Kermit the Frog green in the middle. Right. And that stripe is about a quarter of a millimeter wide. And if you want to have that show on the outside of the dial, right? So it's almost like these dudes that can pick up a raw diamond or an mm -hmm. emerald and look at it inside and figure out what the stone is doing and what's the best way to cut it from. Right. And like with these dials I just showed you, if I were to take either of those and sand them for 20 seconds more, completely different colors, completely totally different, different pattern. Yeah. It is four-dimensional art because there is time in it. These are layers that were sprayed down by a human hand 
in 1980, if that person is still alive, who knows, each layer was a car. Somebody bought that car. And we're not even talking about especially sexy cars. We're talking about fucking Ford vans from 1986 or something. Yeah, totally. Uh, somebody bought one of these cars and they took the kids to hockey practice and they bought groceries and they drove to school and they lived their normal lives. So each of these crazy layers is a little portal, a little window into someone's life. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, not to interrupt you, and because I'm a sucker for details, when you do that stone ground through the espresso grinder and it becomes a powder... How do you then make it a dial? Is it like, is it resin backed? Is it like, do you, how, how does it become another solid object? I scream at it really, really loud and it knows <laughs> what scared. to do. Yeah, it gets scared. Like, ah! yeah. <laughs> no, it, it, it is actually, a, it's a really low tech process once it gets to that point. It's just cast with a very optically clear resin. And then we, okay. and then we mill the dials out of that. Sure. We had looked at actually casting individual dials, but because the Dark Matter series was only 50 watches, mm -hmm. making dials that would have been good enough for mm -hmm. a watch dial or yeah. making molds that would have been accurate enough for a watch dial would have cost a lot. Right. So it's actually easier to just sort of precision CNC them. Yeah. Cool. And the people that own these very expensive CNC machines that are used to milling, you know, aluminum and stuff really love it when you ask them if they can mill stone or a brick right. of coffee or fucking peanut butter or whatever the kind of stupid crap I'm going to throw at right. them next week. Right, right, right. Oh man, that's so crazy. What's What's been like the hardest part of Arcanaut as far as you're concerned? Like, has there been anything that's been difficult and or that you've like learned from that you may have done differently? Probably Anderson is drinking. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's a tough hurdle to get over. <laughs> uh, he's going to hear that. Um, I, I would probably say kind of where we're at now is, is really quite challenging because I mean, as far as it being a, a full-time, fully functional brand, we're only about a year and a half, maybe two years in, and it's become really popular quite fast. So we're mm. having all the usual growing pains, right? but usually it takes several years to get to the point of like, we need a bigger facility. We need to hire four more people. We need this. We need this. We need financing. We're, we sort of got into that about six months after we started calling it Arcanaut. So it's like, so that's, that's difficult because trying to stay independent in the face of that is really hard. Well, let me interrupt you for this one point then. So why do You'd like that? to invest. No, honestly, like if I were in your shoes... You, you have to have a very difficult conversation with yourself and say, listen, okay, we don't have the capacity to grow, grow, grow. Well, if you're talking to a guy like me, like, I don't want to be 150 member staff. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't care to do that. So it's simply supply and demand at this point. So why don't you just raise your prices and keep the production low? Odd about that. I mean, the Fordite is more expensive than the Dark Matter. Mm -hmm. um, it's about four or 500 bucks more expensive because it actually is a hell of, I mean, I hand make every single one of these dials. Um, but as far as just sort of jacking up prices and sort of bumping ourselves into a different price bracket. Well, and not jacking it up in such a negative connotation, but, you know, charge extra. 
there are a bunch of independent brands that Mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. a couple of releases out at three or four or five thousand dollars and then suddenly it's 1750 and you're like what did i miss like what the hell um and this is something where i've i've spoken to i'm extremely fortunate to have access to someone like max where i can just kind of quite innocently bump these kind of you know forest gump questions off of them sure and and scalability is something that they have done at MBNF very, very well. Mm-hmm. And they basically said, we don't want to be a company that makes 5,000 watches a year. Right. We want to be a company that makes 150 watches a year. Whatever we have to do to do that and to stay at that, we're okay with. Mm-hmm. So granted, we're talking about a company that does have watches that are over $150,000, but everything's sold out. There's, I think Max said when I saw him in New York, they're, they're sold out for several years. Yeah, it's like five years. Yeah. There's just none of them. They, they just, they get snapped up so fast. Um, and not even by just flippers, you know, like, like Rolex and stuff. A lot of those are getting bought up just by gray market flippers, which is why everyone's got, including myself, has bad shit to say about Rolex. Um, keeping production low, keeping it personal, and keeping the customer relationship, we are really going out of our way to do Mm -hmm. if we sold out hard and man we've thought about it Mm -hmm. um we'd be making cake loads of money right is that what is important you know no i i want to keep it as a garage band yeah that's what i'm saying i think we kind of owe that to the quote-unquote watch industry is not to go, you know, let's open offices in Geneva and start calling ourselves a Maison. And no, fuck that. We wouldn't be the guys to go out for beers on Tuesday. Right. That's who we were before Arcanaut. And that's who most of our clients are. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have people that, you know, say, oh, I had to save up for six months to buy one of these watches. You know, don't tell my wife what I paid for it. And it was one of their first big expensive watches. One of my friends from high school, Adam Stokes, bought one of our Dark Matter watches. And he's like, this is the first watch I've ever bought. Wow. You know, he's, he's a lifelong construction worker, making pretty good money, but he's not the guy who's going to go out and buy a new Rolex every week like some of these people we know. Right. So that I like. That, I, that really gets me going. Mm-hmm. Even though we love and appreciate, you know, say somebody in like Dubai or Singapore, you know, that has a $200,000 Louis Monet on buying an Arcanaut. Awesome. Yeah. But as far as what's really fulfilling, it's, it's the person that had to kind of sweat about it a little bit. Yeah. Because there was a lot more intention. I think there was a lot more sort of like, I really had to dig my nails in and maybe sell off a couple other smaller pieces to get it and stuff. Sure. And those are the people that I think in the long run are going to benefit the brand. I mean, if you want to be a little, a little sort of business cynical about it, flippers are just going to be excited about it until they sell it. Right. But somebody that really had to sell a couple things to get it will keep it and will yeah. maybe give it to their kid one day. And yeah. that's that's just but, awesome. I, yeah, that's the I, best. I love that kind of way of thinking. Yeah. Well, wrapping up here a little bit, I never asked you, what did your parents do for a living? growing up contract killers <laughs> sharpshooter huh that's right <laughs> paid assassin uh let's see my mom raised two idiotic children uh my dad 
it, it, it was one of these things where I probably, I couldn't have even really have told you what his job was until I was about 30. He was a business dad. You know? hey, he, he was in business. Uh, no, he, he, came yeah. up, <laughs> he came up through construction management and stuff. And um, before he retired for a bunch of years, he had a, a like a project consultancy where they would set up the deal for major sort of urban construction projects like shopping malls and uh, stadiums and that kind of stuff. Mm. Is he still in Vancouver? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And my brother kind of went into the same line of work as well, actually for one of the same companies. So whenever my brother would be over for dinner, he and my dad would be talking about business stuff and all these multi, you know, 25, $30 million developments they're doing in Vancouver. Right. And I would turn to my mom and be like, I drew a duck at school today yes. <laughs> <laughs> at the age of like 25. Like, look, mom, right. I drew a duck. No, but it's blue. The duck is blue, mom. It glows <laughs> in the dark. Yeah. Um, what does your dad think of your operation now? It was, it, it was difficult in the beginning because there was nobody artistic in my family. And I did have to kind of crash and burn a couple times to get, to get there. Um, and that was facilitated by parents that took way better care of me than they probably needed to. Mm. Um, so that I'm, I'm unbelievably grateful for parents giving you the space to cock it up a few times is, is pretty swank. And actually one of the proudest moments of my life was the whole reason that we have this Arcanaut Fordite series was I gave my dad my, my arc too. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I actually, uh, got it back from him and we modified it to become the very first Fordite prototype. So for about a year, he had the only Fordite Arcanaut in existence. Oh, um, cool. And we didn't show any pictures of it, didn't show it to anybody because new people would start saying, oh, can you make us one? Yeah. And, uh, you know, like at that point, it, it was only been about a year since we did the Banford Fordites. And I, I really didn't want to be stepping on toes with that, so to speak. So I actually spoke to George about all this before we started doing it. And he just gave a, a huge enthusiastic thumbs up, which was pretty awesome of him. Sure. Um, so, so giving my dad the very first Arcanaut Fordite was really cool because now he wears it all the time. Oh, that's great. I just saw my cousin in Copenhagen last week. So at my cousin Kyle's wedding in San Francisco a couple weeks before, uh, he and my dad were both wearing Arcanaut watches because Kyle bought one of the, the dark matter. So my dad grabs the wedding photographer and like pulls him over like away from the bride and gets him to start taking pictures of oh, he and my cousin wearing their fucking. So I'm probably going to get a bill for like $10,000 from the wedding photographer <laughs> for that. But, but that was pretty cool. <laughs> James, thanks, man. Absolute pleasure. I hope you can use some of this. 100%. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll see you in San Francisco. Yeah, for sure. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Thanks so, so much. Speak soon. Okay, bud. Thanks, pal. Cheers. This wraps up this episode of the Standard Age Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.